20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm David A. Bradbury, and this is 20-Minute History. On today's episode... After hundreds of years of theatrical tradition in England, followed by a brief ban and a restoration, the first actress made her debut on the British stage. This is Season 1, Episode 3. And let's make like good old sports and jump right into it. I mean, um... Let's jump right in. Acting in the 17th century was not exactly a well-respected profession, especially for women. It may be easy to forget that with all the pomp and circumstance surrounding Hollywood actors these days, but doing stage theater in Elizabethan England was very often associated with characteristics like sexual availability, voyeurism, indecency, and, well, to use a less polite term, general whorishness. The English public simply did not consider acting to be a proper profession for a woman, so much so that when female actors performed in London as part of a French troupe in November of 1629, their reception was extremely unfavorable, complete with hoots and hisses. This is not to say that women never performed on stage, as we do have documented evidence that some women performed in English court plays during this time, with the most notable actress indeed being Queen Henrietta Maria, the wife of King Charles I. Nonetheless, before 1660, the public theatre proceeded in a very different manner from private court theatre, with patrons generally believing that it was most proper to have men play all parts, with some young men trained to play the women's parts. Of course, not everyone was so happy with this mode of theatre. It certainly had its detractors, though not for the reason that you may think. For the most part, critics were not fighting to get women into theatre. In fact, far from it, they were battling to do away with theatre altogether. Many of these complaints came from devout Puritans, who contended that the lewdness and lasciviousness charges applied to both men and women. Case in point, take William Prynne's Histriomastics, an incendiary book in which he bashes stage plays as, quote, sinful, heathenish, lewd, ungodly spectacles and most pernicious corruptions. (sighs) Killjoy. Two of Prynne's claims, which no doubt raised a lot of eyebrows even in his day, are worth noting here. The first is his condemnation of actresses as, quote, notorious whores, unquote. This was for many of the same reasons detailed earlier, and it actually landed him in jail as it was perceived as a blasphemous remark against the Queen. 
The second regarded his complete disapproval of boy players in English theater since, in his mind, doing so promoted a culture of homosexuality. Regardless of how we would view these claims today, the Puritan viewpoint actually won out. In 1642, on the eve of the First English Civil War, Parliament banned public theater. This was followed by more than 18 years of political brouhaha, the details of which are very interesting, but not in the least relevant to our discussion here. So the short story is, England went to war with itself twice, Charles I was beheaded, Oliver Cromwell succeeded him and declared himself the Lord Protector, his son failed to keep power, and the monarchy was re-established in 1660 by Charles II, thus beginning a period known as the English Restoration. And for our purposes, there are a few things contextually that you need to know about it. First, Charles II lifted the ban on theatre and granted just two licenses for companies to perform theatre for profit in London. William Davenant established the Duke's Company and Thomas Killigrew formed the King's Company. Secondly, from there, things began to change. Company structures were established, plays were moved indoors, new technologies made storytelling more layered and complex, and new themes were introduced. And third, perhaps the most interesting change of them all, in the dying breath of 1660, something completely unexpected happened. The King's Company staged a production of Othello, but with a highly unusual prologue. I quote, The woman plays today. Mistake me not. No man in gown or page in petticoat. A woman, to my knowledge. You heard it right. On this day, a woman stepped forward to perform the role of Desdemona and become the first English actress. A woman by the name of... Well, that's kind of the problem with this quote-unquote biography. Not only are we not aware of when or where exactly this production took place, we're also not exactly sure who this woman was since no dramatis personae survived this day. That hasn't exactly stopped people from guessing. For example, if you Google first British actress, the internet, and in particular Wikipedia, will proudly tell you that Margaret Hughes was that actress, and that hypothesis is not entirely without merit. An actress named Margaret Hughes almost certainly existed, and she probably had friends in high places within the Restoration government that could have gotten her there, including Prince Rupert of the Rhine, her husband, and Charles II. But not all scholars agree. Elizabeth Howe throws her money behind Anne Marshall, one of the most lauded and talented members of Killigrew's early company in 1660. Marshall has a documented history as a popular tragic actor in the years that followed, so again, it's not exactly far-fetched to assume that she played Desdemona. And Catherine Eisenman Mouse, in a research paper she wrote all about early British actresses and their success for the Johns Hopkins Press, doesn't even care to venture a guess. It would be very easy to tell you that I know exactly who it was and then proceed to cheerily tell you all about her, but that's just not true. So what I'd like to do now is break from my long, proud, two-episode history of straightforward biographies and instead spend the rest of this show talking to you about the first British actresses generally. We can start with what allowed them to be on stage in the first place before moving on to what promoted their success when just 30 years prior they had been hissed and booed out of the country. What was their impact on the plays they performed in? And what legacy did they leave on the stage? 
So with that, why don't we make like one of those actresses and take it from the top with the question, why did theater start using actresses? I understand that it might be intuitive and tempting to assume that female actresses were introduced because they could play female parts more convincingly than young boys could, along with the band leaving theaters with a deficiency of boy actors. But there's ample evidence to suggest that this was not the case. Mouse adeptly points out that the character complexity of Rosalind, Cleopatra, Desdemona, and others suggests that Elizabethan playwrights had a great deal of confidence in the capabilities of their boy actors. And Howe agrees, citing a review that shows, quote, unquestionably, boy or not, she, referring to the boy actor, was a woman. In fact, in the early years of the Restoration, Edward Kiniston, a renowned female impersonator, would routinely receive rave reviews for his portrayals of women's roles. No, by and large, women were not more convincing in the audience's eyes than young men in these parts, nor is the lack of boy actors a sufficient explanation for the transition. The real reason that women made their debut and eventually came to replace the likes of Kinnison actually had much less to do with morals or practicality and much more to do with boring politics. The gist? Restoration audiences were much more closely aligned with the courts, and the courts were much more amenable to women actors. So, Leaving that boringness behind, and to ask the more interesting question, once they'd gotten there, what made some of them so popular, and where did that popularity lead them? Did it allow them to create a better, more respectable, more acceptable public image? Well, just like philosophy and politics, it's complicated. And it may not shock you, given what we've talked about already, along with your own assumptions about this era, that much of the success of Restoration actresses was due to their perceived sexual promiscuity. Though it sounds a little strange to say out loud, the reason that so many plays from this period had a woman dressed in men's clothing was because trousers were much tighter than a dress, allowing the audience to ogle at length. Indeed, it's not controversial to say that even after laws changed to allow them on stage, actresses were still largely seen as prostitutes by male patrons, and their behavior consistently reflected that idea. Samuel Pepys' self-recorded interaction with famed actress Nell Gwynne when he wandered, quote, "...up into the tiring rooms where Nell was dressing herself and was all unready and is very pretty," is one of the milder examples of this. It's even been suggested that the rise in rape scenes in Restoration drama could boil down to the male audience deriving a certain pleasure from the mere suggestion that a powerful man was taking advantage of a woman, even though these rapes never explicitly took place on stage. To say the least, it seems clear that the popularity of these actresses was not entirely down to their talent. But, to say that their talent and ingenuity had no part to play in their success would be just as misinformed. Because among their proudest achievements, the most popular actresses could even be credited with creating their own theatrical subgenres. Elizabeth Howe claims that the very same Nell Gwynne that once got walked in on by Sir Samuel Pepsalot had such great chemistry with Charles Hart when playing gay couples, a term describing, quote, a pair of lively, witty lovers, that she is almost single-handedly responsible for the trend's popularity. Elizabeth Barry and her talent, on the other hand, helped to pioneer a huge transition in restoration drama, 
Suddenly, heroic tragedies that focused on influential figures and their epic failings gave way to pathetic dramas, which centered more around problems and misgivings on the micro-scale. And I have to note that the similarities between this dramatic style and the trends in drama today is certainly not lost on me. Safe to say, the legacy of the first British actresses is anything but straightforward. And obviously, we are still talking about a period in which the power that these women had was at least in part confined to the power that influential men gave them. The actress in the Restoration wasn't much without her director, playwright, and other actors. But in my opinion, their continued exploitation on stage, their frequent disallowance to hold any sort of executive power in the company, and their audience deriving such a large proportion of their worth from their appearance? These facts should make the impact they undoubtedly had that much more impressive. If you were to leave here with just one thing in mind, I'd like it to be that removing actresses from the stage would have fundamentally altered the course of Restoration Theatre. For as much as it might have been easier for me when crafting this episode to stumble upon the definitive first British actress and to tell just her story, perhaps it's better that I couldn't. Perhaps this episode can serve as a strong reminder that no singular historical figure, no matter how important, creates change on their own. History, for better or worse, is very much a collective effort. Nell Gwynn, Elizabeth Barry, Anne Bracegirdle, Margaret Hughes, these are the names of remarkable women who together did remarkable things. By increasing women's visibility in the public social sphere and allowing for new explorations of their unique experiences in art. They were more than just actresses. They were innovators. Thank you again so, so much for listening to this episode of 20 Minute History. If you liked it, then please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating, as well as checking us out on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 20minhistory. As I've become accustomed to doing, I would like to extend a very special thank you to the two women whose work most heavily influenced this episode, Elizabeth Howe and Catherine Eisenman Mouse. Additionally, I'd like to say that Howe's book, The First English Actresses, was possibly a more influential source on this episode than any source has been for any episode so far. So if this episode has sparked your interest, then I highly recommend that you seek it out. And of course, don't forget to return for next week's episode when we'll discover that the greatest showman isn't as great as you might think he is. But until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning lest you-know-what repeats itself. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.